Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake, help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins. For thy name's sake. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us pray. We gather once again on this your day, God, a day that is set aside for you and to worship you and to be with your saints, Lord, a day of, of rest, God, for our bodies and doubly so for our souls. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that we have access to such a day that our society has not shut us down, although uh, more and more, God, we find uh, events and the like occurring on your day <clears throat> and impinging upon us. We ask, God, that we would continue to have our freedoms, that... Uh, COVID situation, we go back to normal, Lord, and those who are high risk, we get the protections they need, God, wherever they may be, especially those nearest and close to us. We praise you and thank you, God above, for being our Lord and Savior, a God of power and might and providence, for the providence, and special providence directed towards your church, for us, Lord, and our families. We praise you for that, God. We exalt your name, Lord. We see the rain today and the sun tomorrow, uh, God above, and the house that we have even now, Lord, as Evidence of your love for us as signs of your providence and power and your protection of us, God, above. We thank you, Lord, for guiding all things in history and time, even here and now, Lord, for your glory and for our good. May we keep that in our hearts and minds, Lord, as we struggle with various and sundry things in life, God, as we go out to the week, work week and our callings and vocations in life, God, above, that you are in charge. We are called to do our duties before you, Lord. Results are in your hands. We ask, God, that you would forgive us of our sins, whatever they may be that we personally struggle with or certainly collectively struggle with, God. Hate or anger or, Lord, causing and uh, being distracted by various and sundry things, Lord, distractions from our duty and callings in life, God. Whatever those may be, Lord, may uh, we do what we can to fight against those and to repent of our sins, God, and to cling to Jesus Christ, yes, daily. We pray for our families and lift them up before you, God, for love and growth and love between the parents and, uh, uh, Lord, the husbands and wives, God, of our church, uh, those around us who are Christians, Lord, and for the children to love their parents, the parents to love their children, God, and not a love of, the, of this world, Lord, a love often that is very sentimental and emotional, Lord, uh, but a love that uh, certainly has those feelings, the good feelings like God, but above all, a love that is geared towards the good of one another. Lord, for the parents to discipline their children, that is a show of love. For the children to obey their parents, that is a show of love. We pray, God, for our families to be protected from the lies of this world and the advertisements and the entertainment. And even our neighbors, Lord, uh, who frown upon us and who try to confuse us, Lord, and tell us that that is not love. Love is indulgence. Love is doing what you wish and what you want, Lord, and letting kids do whatever they wish. We pray and ask God that we would stand firm against that, not only individually, but as families, not only as families by themselves, but as families among families in the church of God, Lord, that we as a church and as Christian communities would use our means, causes, and occasions, and whatever else we have, Lord, to reinforce the truth of love and a family, Lord, of submission, of discipline, of God, and uh, above all, a following of you and your ways. We pray for our work situation, God. We lift it up before you, Lord. Thankful again in spite of the downturn in the economy and many, many people unemployed, uh, that we have good gainful employment here at Providence, God, and that we would have the wisdom, Lord, that it takes to do our job and to understand uh, when is the time to leave our job or when is the time to ask for a pay raise or when is the time to ask for help or whatever else we need, God, and certainly to take stock of our situation to see where we are weak so that we can become better workers 
And to understand God, our jobs before you, Lord, are not always jobs that make money. Being a student uh, at home, uh, at school, Lord, at college and the like, uh, these are jobs, these are vocations, this is work, and work that we ought to do as unto you, Lord, and do our best. Help us, Lord, again, to fight and resist against laziness. Give us your spirit, we pray, and encouragement again from one another as saints who also, especially the uh, uh, older among us, God, whatever age that may be, that has gone through all this difficult time, that we would bring our wisdom uh, to the young and the youth, Lord, to, to encourage them, to warn them from various dangers and temptations with, with regard to life and with regard to work in particular. And we ask, God, that we would take stewardship seriously, Lord, that our job is part of our stewardship, uh, that our house, that our family and our relationships, Lord, uh, the abilities and the gifts that you've blessed us with, Lord, and the schoolings that we have that others do not have, to use it, to use it for your church, Lord, as we hear this morning, God, that we are called to love one another fervently. And that can be expressed often in the stewardship of our time and effort, Lord, uh, to use that for the saints for those in need in the household of God. So, Lord, we pray for our churches. We pray for the churches of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, for our presbytery, for our church, Lord, for other churches, Lord, of different denominations and independent, Lord, as long as they are Christians and love Jesus and desire your word, Lord, that they would love and love one another fervently, that the world may know that we indeed love you and one another. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us read the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor a stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I will get done with this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I already went over, as you recall, verses 22 to 25, as it is one sentence with uh, three main parts to it, or one main verb and two descriptions of what's going on, of this one another love that we have. And I want to drill into the text here. I'll do the same next week in the last verse there. Here is love one another fervently. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is it? What is it not? Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Let us pray. Gracious God and Savior, we thank you for your Spirit. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for this gentle admonition or encouragement, rather, God, since we have already been purifying our souls, Lord, obeying the truth by the power of your Spirit. May we not stop, but rather persevere, Lord, and do more so. That is with fervency, with consistency, Lord, with persistency. Help us, we pray, in this day and age in which we are surrounded by hate, God. We are surrounded by anger and the like. We are told that it's love. We're surrounded by murder, and we're told that it is love. Rather, God, we know what love is. We have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Help us, Lord, in a world full of hate, to love one another fervently. In name alone we pray. Amen. <clears throat> For the last several decades, our society has increasingly labeled love as hate and hate as love. They've not done it by words, they've certainly done it by actions. Clearest example is what? Murdering babies in the name of love and compassion. We're so happy we murdered this baby lest they grow up in a life of poverty, we're told. That's just sick, isn't it? And yet we're told that's normal. It's, we're outnumbered, brothers. Most people think that way, one way or the other. Even if they say, I don't like abortion, they say, but it's a private matter, like murder is a private matter, which is yet another form of what? Love, or hate. They're, we're told it's love, to love my neighbor, let them murder their baby silently, quietly. Not, it is hate, it is not love, but we're told we're crazy because we're full of hate. That's where we are. That's what I'm talking about. A close second, of course, is increased hatred of those close to us, killing your own children, is a hatred of someone close to you, is it not? A variation of it. Another glowing example of loving strangers more than loving your family and close friends is New York State, as you may recall, a couple of weeks ago, giving $2 billion to illegal immigrants while their own businesses and people with her on the, on the vine. They're told that's love, and if you take care of your family, if you need help, that's hate. That's where we are. This is why I'm highlighting this text, because there's a lot of pressure upon the church to redefine by word and by action what love is and what hate is. Refusing to name someone the opposite sex is called hate. Even minding your own business about the riots of anger and lust and greed is called hate. Again, because we're not in favor of what they're doing, we're told we're hateful when, we're, when we are not. Do not listen to them, brothers and sisters. Lust, envy, and greed, that's not love, that is hate. We know what love is, for the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. The Lord calls us to love, especially the household of faith. Galatians 6. Especially the household of faith. And we need that more today than ever before. Love. I have three simple points right from the text. Uh, that you can make a fourth point, but pastors can't, aren't allowed to do that, apparently. 
Um, love one another fervently. The third point with a pure heart being applied there. I unpacked that last week. Love. What love is not. It is helpful to learn about love by learning what love is not. And learning by contrast is one of those things you learn in school, and it's helpful. Love is not indulgence, right? Letting people sin because you love them so much. We know about indulgent parents. You're like, why is that kid, that teenager, whoever, screaming in the middle of the night, out having a party, waking up the neighborhood? Well, I love my kids. We've seen it. You've seen it. You don't have to see TV sitcom shows. It happens in real life. I remember it happening to us in our first home, like midnight. I'm like, what are you guys doing up parties at school night? We need to sleep. We can hear you two houses away. Indulgence is not love. That's a lie of the world. Being a format, on the other hand, is not love either. Letting people abuse you and walk over you and take your wealth or whatever it is and your time, because time is money often. Time is a resource. It's something we're supposed to steward. And we're told, if you don't give me all your time, you don't love me. Well, no, I have to take care of my family, my church. I have other issues in life. That's not love. That's someone abusing you. Love is not being a floor mat. That's another life in the world. And of course, related to these is love as a license to sin, right? Love as a license to sin. Hey, we're supposed to love one another. We don't need the law of God to define and give you the parameters of love. Again, this is even in the church. I grew up with a variation of it in my background as a charismatic, but it's not just in charismatic circles. Either. Love, if it's used in arguments and the like, is often used, unfortunately, as an excuse for sin. Don't you love me? Don't you let me do what I need to do? I've got to have freedom. These, they use these abstract phrases where we'll see in the Bible love is very concrete. Love is very concrete. Rather, freedom from sin means freedom to love. To love aright, not love unto sin. It's not a license to sin. Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That is, for sin. Flesh is shorthand in Paul's language for doing sin and violating God's law. But through love, serve one another. Having freedom, having love is not a license to sin, but rather a license to serve one another as Christians, brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to do. So now we're getting into the idea of What is love? What is its purpose? What is its function? One thing you'll find in the Bible, of course, is that the Bible is not a dictionary. It's it's written to real Christians in real time, in real space, in real history. Written to believers of old, the Old Testament, believers of new in the New Testament. And it assumes we know what love is. I had some sermons on that before, how love is understood even by unbelievers. Practiced by unbelievers, yes, in the twisted form sometimes, and always without respect to God. Love, I think, one of the simplest ways of defining it is commitment. Commitment. I am committed to you. That's why, that is, I'm committed to my wife, I'm committed to you. So I'm your pastor here, and she's my wife. And I made a, a formal public event about it that it would be set in stone as a social event. Same with the church. When I was ordained and the hands were laid on me and I was installed in the office here. I'm committed to you. If you, 
you find out I'm missing half the church Sundays, and I'm down the street preaching on the street, what, what happened to our pastor? Is he not committed to us? Does he not love us? You see that? It's a commitment. It's not the commitment the way the world is, because one way of twisting this approach would be saying, don't you love the lost pastor? Why aren't you in the street preaching every Sunday? Well, because I also love the saints. What do you do when you have two different loves? You go to the one you're committed to first. There's always a hierarchy of commitment and love, by definition. And I'm committed to you. So I'm here on Sundays, preaching to you. And it's the same with your family. You know that. It's the same with your children and the like. It's a commitment. It's important in these days, in this day and age of not having the right priorities and the right commitments, and we're told to do everything but right priorities of what love is, because you're beat over the head in society with the claim that you don't have enough love, right? It's important also with respect to the church, because there's a lot of church hopping. People will have a hard time settling down. Part of that, of course, I know it's hard to find a church. Uh, often, in my experience, it's just simply they've not been taught that commitment and love to one another as a church involves being settled down at a church if you are able. And that leads us to concrete actions. It's not just a commitment only. It's also concrete actions. And it's providential. It ends up being an alliteration. Commitment, concrete, and the next one's command. <laughs> it's a concrete action. First Corinthians, what chapter? That's right, 13. First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. <clears throat> love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. That's fairly concrete, isn't it? It's not just rejoicing and feeling good. That's part of it, but it's rejoicing in the truth and not rejoicing in iniquity. And it's not just a kindness in, in general, but a kindness that does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Not a feeling. A feeling is there often, but it should not be reduced to a feeling or a Hallmark card. So love is a commitment. It is a concrete action or a series of action, a collection of actions to those you are committed to. And as we know, it is a command of God. Love is commanded by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Contrary to everything we were raised with, at least I was raised with, I'm sure many of you were raised with, a lot of you weren't raised in Christian homes. You can't command love, we're told. Have you seen all the romance novels and movies? It's all about spontaneity. The lightning strike from the blue. And yet here is Christ telling believers, you, I'm telling you, you ought to, and you shall, and you should love one another. It is a command, brothers and sisters. John 13, 34. In John 13, 34, what do we have? You know this one as well. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He says it again. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Who's going to know we're the disciples of Christ? The world. If you have love for one another. Well, of course, by a new command, he means a relatively new command in a twofold way. One, we know for a fact that the command to love God and even to love your neighbor is commanded in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.8, for example, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So what does he mean when he says it's new? It's as I have loved you. There. As I have loved you. Before Christ came, we didn't fully, this church didn't fully understand what that love looked like in the concrete. There was no New Testament. So it's a comparative. As I have loved you. Something has changed in redemptive history we talk about, right? From the Old Testament to the New Testament. And part of that change now is we have a greater example, greater clarity and revelation of the love of God in Christ Jesus. As you read the gospel, that they did not have in the Old Testament. From that comparison that Christ says, I give you this new command. This, this command of love with a new impetus, a new context, a newer revelation of who I am and my love for you. And in the light of the love of Christ, what kind of love did Christ have? As I have loved you, he sacrificed himself for us, didn't he? He suffered for us. He was long-suffering. He was patient. Same things we hear about love, 1 Corinthians 13 and elsewhere. Christ is our example. It is a command. It is concrete actions. And it is commitment, brothers and sisters. At least those are the things I want to highlight in a day and an age which fights and pushes against that. The books that you read, perhaps, the magazines, the advertisements, the movies, they don't have this approach to love, typically. It's all fleeting. It's all emotional. It's all very subjective. And it's whimsical. comes and goes. It's central to the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13.3, we're still under the idea of what is love? This is love. We know what it's not. Now we're seeing what it is. It is central, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, right? Faith, hope, and love. We hear a lot about faith as good Calvinists and Presbyterians, right? We're justified, declared righteous in the law courts of God above by faith alone and nothing else. Cannot obey enough. Cannot attend enough church meetings and worship enough. It is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But that's not all there is to it. You know that. There's love. But the greatest of these is love. That's the goal. That's the direction of the Christian life. We are justified. That doesn't change. We believe that should never change. In fact, your faith will fall apart without believing. We cannot stay at the, as it were, the rudiments of Christian religion and just talk about faith all the time. It must work itself out in love. Love of one another. By this will all the world know, will all know, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's one of the signs. Christians, don't let the world guilt trip you when you put your family and your friends and your church first. Because there may come a time when your own family gets angry at you because you take the church seriously. You want to come to worship. You want to be with the saints. You want to pray for them. You want to help them. You want to talk with them. You want to fellowship with them. And they think you're crazy. What's your problem? Why are you so committed to these people? We're family. That's true. You should be committed to your family, but not to the exclusion of the church. That's where the rubber hits the road with unbelieving family members. It's hard. And yet that's what we're called to do. It is central. That's what I mean by it's central to the Christian life. You can do both. Great. Again, we've been blessed for a long time in many generations in America to be able to have not a blessing to have unbelieving family members, but having family members who aren't Christians and not have much of a conflict with them, right? Especially in the old days when the older generation, they had 
Everyone had Sunday off, right? Even the unbelieving family didn't do anything on Sunday. It's just time of rest and relaxation. There's no conflict. Conflict is growing now. So I'm encouraging you uh, to steal yourself, to prepare yourself, to encourage yourself. This is the right thing. To love the church. There is a conflict. You have to choose the church. You have to choose worship. You have to choose following God. You must choose that over your family. That's what I mean by centrality. Love is a priority of commitments. And sometimes there's a conflict. and You have to choose one over the other, don't you? Choose one or the other. And that's where we get to one another. The second point. Love one another. The one another passage. One another, of course, is fellow Christians. If you're a family member, that's a double love. That's great. But if they're not, you should still love them. Love one another. The love one, the one another passages of the New Testament, I went through those. I went through my notes, what was that? I guess seven years ago. It was 2013 or so, about when Trip the Martins came here. It was a 10-part series, and I took the 52-plus verses in the New Testament. 52 plus, I counted all of them. One another passages. Serve one another. Comfort one another, esteem one another, unite with one another, edify one another, sacrifice for one another. A whole bunch of them. Collected all of them. Just trying to organize the best I can. That's a lot. I would think that's kind of an important theme in the New Testament, right? That's a lot of passages. And it is important. Basically, they are the second greatest commandment applied to the church, right? Love your neighbor. Love one another. Not just your neighbor, neighbor in your neighborhood. You should love him. Do what you can as a good neighbor, that's true. But love one another especially. Fellow believers, brothers and sisters. A commitment to one another. That's the emphasis of the New Testament era. This love has been compared to what? The love of the church, and the love of the brothers and sisters, and the mothers and the fathers in the faith. I'm using the language of the fifth commandment, right? To compare it to the family. That's the language of the New Testament. The church is like a family. In the natural realm, in the family, natural society outside the church, we love those closest to us. Our family being the closest. Your husband, your wife being the closest of the closest. We know this instinctively. Only so much time and talent can be given to any person at any time of the day. You don't live with your neighbors. You don't live with a guy across town. They're strangers to you. Sure, you're nice to them if you happen to meet them, but that's not your priority. Your family is, this is good, this is natural, it's intuitive. It's how God made the universe. More love will be spent with family members than anyone else. And of course, there are friends who become virtually family members. That happens as well. And you treat them well, you think of them well, and of course you have your fights, as I mentioned before. You don't leave your family. You don't disown your children. You repent, you cover your, a multitude of sins. Right, you... Because you are committed to them. You put up with a lot. Whereas a stranger is like, I don't have to see the guy again. Bye. You're right. I don't live with the guy. And that's the way God made things. And so in the spiritual realm, we love believers more than unbelievers, more or less. There's a commitment there, a priority. The local church first is one way of looking at it. We spend more time and effort. Here, again, you don't want your pastor at another church all the time. What's, what's his problem? Why isn't he working for us and helping us and counseling and preaching to us? He's always over there at the other churches. What's his problem? You know that intuitively. 
It's how it is in real life. Your family member leaves you all the time. They never spend time with you. There's something wrong with them. And not just with the pastor, with one another. Fellow members of the same body here, the local church. Now, of course, it's not exactly the same. We are not a family. It's like, right? Similarly, like or as. So you can only draw so many conclusions so far, but it's a strong emphasis. He says, love one another. Talking to the Christians dispersed across Turkey. Fervently. Get to that third point shortly. But even with any, the Christian family, we don't love one another equally. That word equally, favorite word of our society, right? Well, you can't. You just simply can't. Not with time, not with energy. Some people you click with very well, right? Shared history, shared interests and the like. That's fine. You get along with them well. And other people, not so much. You don't see them as much. Does that mean you, you hate them? Again, the world would say, if you don't spend a lot of time with me or other strangers or something, you hate me. What's your problem? And that seeps into the church. No, it doesn't mean you hate them. You just don't love them as much as you love other people. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's how God designed it. I love this church and you more than others insofar as what? I'm spending more time and effort and commitment to you. That's what that means. Everyone else in the same church, or perhaps like uncles and nephews, you don't see them as much. They're not as close to you, but they are still your immediate family, your immediate church. And when something happens, there's a problem that happens, what do you do? You go help your uncle, you help your your cousins, because you're committed to them. And same with the church, same with the local church. So don't go, again, by how well you know a person per se, but we are covenanted, brothers and sisters. This church and other churches in Denver and across the nation, we're covenanted to each other first. Our ties go here first. Our time and effort goes here first. And there's nothing wrong with that and everything right with it. Just like with natural family and close friends, the same with the church. I'm making the analogy here. You take care of your church first. You have to take care of churches at all. And we do. Again, some people like to use the language of the church as a family to think it somehow replaces the family. So if I have a broken family, I can have a a fixed church, and the fixed church will fix my broken family. It does not happen that way, I'm sorry. The pastor can't be your father. He can help you, he can supplement, he can assist, you can assist one another, but it's simply the fact that we are not literally a family, but we are like unto a family. And if you don't have a father or a mother, it's hard. It may be hard for the rest of your life, but the church is here to help soften the blow. We cannot replace a mother, and we cannot replace a father. We don't live with you for one point. It's a simple, simple fact, right? Your parents live with you. They would influence you. I can't do that. You can't do that. So don't put too much stock, too much load into the metaphor of the church as a family. I've seen that. It's used as an excuse for various sins. Ask me at the church if you want to see how that's done. Now, there's some obstacles to overcome when it comes to love one another, one another as a church. Love your local church first in terms of time and effort and prayers. One of the biggest obstacles we've had in the last 50 years or so is distance. It used to be the older generation. What? You live near the church that you're going to. We don't have that anymore. We don't have community churches anymore. And part of that is because of how mobile our society is. It's cheap. It's easy. Or cheap. We're going to say cheap, but it's easier. It was easy to get transportation and get a job and leave. Don't, you're not here anymore. So the church is fragmented. Thousands of years church you grew up in, the place you worked, you went to the local church, and that's where you were at. We don't have that anymore, so we have to make a double effort 
to overcome the old adage. Remember that? Out of sight, out of mind. That's the danger we have in the American churches. And it's not really through our own fault. This, our society morphed that way, and we're part of society. The churches have to adapt. We can't force people. Why don't you all live in the spot of Denver, right? We have to make do the best decision as we can where to live, considering our jobs and the like. Companies don't care, right? So that affects us. I'm not blaming the church. I'm saying we have to overcome that the best we can. And the way to do that, you have to be aware that is a problem. Distance is a problem. We think it's not. We can Zoom. We all found out last year we really don't want to Zoom if we don't have to, right? We'd rather meet in person. And that's true. We ought to, as best we can. So, distance can be a problem. And the way, one way to overcome distance, of course, is to make a conservative effort in your life throughout the week or throughout the month. Some people are more busy than others, so I'm not going to say you have to do X, Y, Z. But as a reminder, this is an obstacle to the one and other passages of the Bible. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. That is, one another. What are the interests? And so you have to be aware of those interests and pray for those interests and perhaps write it down somewhere to remind you throughout the week or, again, throughout the month, whatever works, uh, to overcome that distance problem. Again, Zoom can help. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that. It's just terrible. But we know it's not a substitute for distance. Full substitute. So do what you can. Now, busyness is another problem with one another passages, another obstacle that we have to overcome. If Related to the idea of locality, right? Distance. If we <laughs> had a shared history and lived in the same neighborhood, more or less, and went to some of the same schools, more or less, and had the same kind of businesses, and everything was related and close and local, and we had a common, homogenous society, then business wouldn't be as big a problem because we'd all have basically the same schedule. We'd all have Sunday off. Businesses would expect that like they used to. They knew you and the like. So distance can be related to the idea of busyness, too. We would have similar schedules. We'd know each other. We'd walk out our neighborhood, and there you are. What are you guys doing this week? Yeah, let's, let's, let's get the schedule. It's harder with distance to map the schedule. i got to drive half an hour. That's to throw my schedule off. Or 40 minutes, time and space all go together. That's how God designed it in busyness as well. And we have to take a self-conscious effort, perhaps, and I think we often have in our church, praise be to God, uh, to set aside some time outside of Sunday itself to do something while we have weekday studies. I do the Wednesday night, of course. It's, uh, it's on Zoom now, and then we can meet back together in person and still do Zoom somehow. would be great for other people as well, but uh, we have that, and I set aside, I purposely to set aside the first 15 minutes so that we can just talk. Last time I saw you was on Sunday. I don't see you every day. Like, again, the churches, even in this ancient Near East time, they, they live near each other. The cities were compact and tight. Even the country folks were going to the same church. And so that's an opportunity. And, of course, the women's get together and the like. And so those are the two obstacles to overcome the one another, distance and busyness or time uh, management there. And thirdly, fervently. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. In purity or in sincerity, not with duplicity. So you recall that word fervently is actually more along the lines of constant or persistent. And we see that in Acts 12.5. In Acts 12.5 we read, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. It means, as I recall, a stretched out or a length of time. 
And so the idea of fervent is more along the lines of persistence. Not, again, as you hear in English, I have a lot of zeal, but I'm just barely praying for you. You know, I have a lot of emotions. No, brother, I don't want the emotions. Keep the prayer. Keep praying. Even if your emotions ebb and flow, you keep praying. You're consistent. You're persistent. It doesn't matter your emotional state. That's the idea here of loving one another. Not love one another when you feel like it, right? But love one another because you are committed to one another in Christ Jesus. So, again, we live far away. Uh, We have conflicting schedules often because our our companies and bosses have different expectations of us, et cetera, et cetera, and different club meetings and whatnot. But at the very least, are we ready to show love when the opportunity arises? Right? Ready to say, okay, we're done. We can do it. Schedule's clear. I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show, show some love. And this is a means of putting off the old man and putting on the new. The old man had hate. The old man had selfishness, self-gratification, self-esteem, division, and the like. New man, however, says, I want love. I want to serve. I want to comfort. I want to esteem. I want to edify. I want to unite. I want to sacrifice for God's people. That looks different for all of us, to be sure. What are the examples of being fervent, being consistent, consistent, constant, and pushing forward in our love for one another? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remain and there remember that your brother, not some stranger down the street, although it's true for them as well, but the emphasis here again is one another in the church. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. And go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift, your gift of worship, is what that act is. Be reconciled to love and to forgive one another. That's the oil that keeps the church running smoothly. In fact, we're told in Peter, get there, quoting the Old Testament, love covers multitude of sins. There are sins you cover, and you know this as parents with your children, that the child never asks forgiveness for. You're already ready to forgive, and you've already forgotten. That's an example of a fervency, of constant effort of love, and love in this case is expressed through forgiving one another. Ready to forgive. How many times? Seventy times seven. Let's, let's get the calculator out, right? No. You keep fervently forgiving one another. Friendliness, of course, we're called to be a family, as I said, uh, by metaphor and part of the practice of a family is friendliness and patience and long-suffering with one another and understanding our weaknesses and accounting for those weaknesses. Oh, you know, that's just Sean, <laughs> or that's just Billy, something like that. Billy would beat me up later, because that's just Billy. Well, you too, don't you? You do that, family members. Oh, that's just Uncle John. Just water off a duck's back. That's fervency. That's I'm committed, and I'm willing to put up with a lot. Right? To love one another with a fervent and pure heart. And, of course, support is an example of fervency, you know, constant support, perpetual support. We don't give up in prayer, certainly. You can do nothing else. I'm not saying you all can run around and clear your schedule, and you're always going to meet once, you know, five times a week or something. I know that's not possible. At the very least, you can always pray and be informed in your prayers. 
give advice, give admonition. It's one of the passages to admonish one another in Galatians. That's not as fun, but it's a call of love. That's the spiritual support. And, of course, material support, money, time, the effort that you have and the skills that you have to help those who are in need. Uh, Moving parties are a good example of that. Again, especially in this day and age, we're finding more and more uh, that Christians are hated more and more. And if you don't uh, say the right things and believe the right people and tweet the right responses, you may never progress through your company and always be middle management, if not poorer. Churches need to be ready for that. Virtually ready, consistently ready, fervently ready, understanding the times and seasons which we find ourselves in. Keep helping one another spiritually and materially. God is, does care about our bodies. Don't let the world, brothers and sisters, extinguish your fervent love for one another with a pure heart. Persist in your love for one another. Persist despite limitations. Persist despite the naysayers. Persist because you do love one another and are committed to one another with concrete actions. Do not grow weary in doing well. Another way of saying it. Do not listen to the hate of the world. Refuse the lies that the church is but a weekend institution, narrowed only to Sunday. And above all, cling to Christ and his love and your love for the people of God. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for this reminder, this calling. The encouragement, actually, as he says there, since you have purified your souls, not since you have not, and I'm going to have to beat you across the head, but rather, God, you are encouraging them, and I believe you're encouraging us and many in the church this day to keep on loving one another because we've already done it. Don't let us stop. Let the momentum flow stronger and grow stronger in a fervent and a pure heart. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.